0: The big question is, what is the gene? The nucleus contains the master molecule of life, DNA. The most exciting molecule around. The human genome is a very big place. It's been described as an explosion in a spaghetti
1: factor. How would we find genes for human disease? How would we find the genes underlying cancer? This is Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information.
2: The great scientific challenges... Transcend national frontiers and national prejudices. For the language of science has always been universal.
1: Hey guys, I'm Brian. And I'm Andrea. And we need to almost shout here because, well, this noise, this raucous crowd you're hearing behind us, that's hundreds of high schoolers.
0: 312 high schoolers, to be exact.
1: And despite this happening at the cusp of summer, this isn't a clip from day camp. What you're hearing is a scientific poster session where these high schoolers, many of them freshmen, got to present their own experimental findings. These are ambitious kids, so I expected to be impressed, but what really blew me away wasn't the amount of work they did, it was how little it resembled the kind of biology I learned in high school.
0: So what we did was, we had the ticks delivered to us, we extracted the DNA next generation sequencing with the aluminum machine, and we analyzed the results from that. This specific type of tick is involved in the transmission of the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. Scientifically, well, we had to work with the Jupyter Notebook, so it wasn't just simple graphs like these. We had thousands and thousands of sequences that we had to go through. I had to learn how to code in Python for that, which I thought was really interesting, to say the least.
1: That was Giovanna Prussia, a 17-year-old junior from. Connect Quad High School, and the project she and Chris Paciolo showed me was pretty different from what you'd see at your average science fair.
0: Yeah, I've heard of Python before, and that's a programming code, isn't it? That's not exactly something you normally learn in high school, right?
1: And Victoria D'Ambrosia, a science teacher from William Floyd High School, was also pretty shocked about what she's got kids learning these days.
0: Okay, so first off, they're doing like these really complex statistical analyses that use bioinformatics tools. I just think uh, when I was in high school, I didn't get to do anything like this at all. Yeah, at all. This is wild. Not too long ago, I too was an aspiring biologist, and computer coding, statistical analyses, these were not the kinds of things I focused on.
1: Well, biology is changing. It's looking that more and more scientists are going to spend as much time behind a computer as at a lab bench. And that's for a really good reason. We are all struggling uh, with the wonderful problem of having too much data. Uh, Big data, as it's uh, featured on the cover of Nature magazine. Big data, as we talk about around the table at Institute Director meetings on Thursday mornings. Big data, as I am even now being asked uh, by people in the White House, what are you going to do about this, Uh, since everybody recognizes that we are in a circumstance of needing to be very thoughtful and creative about how we handle the very large quantities of biological data uh, that are pouring out of many different approaches uh, to understanding how life works and how disease occurs. That's Francis Collins, the man who has been directing the National Institutes of Health for nearly a decade. The clip I just played was from 2012, when he was serving under President Obama, but Collins' goals and concerns have hardly changed since.
0: I can understand why. Collins was also the head of the Human Genome Project. That massive scientific undertaking that, once accomplished, left the world with a whole lot of data and very little idea of what it all meant. We just wrapped up a two-part series that was all about how we're still sifting through the sequenced human genome, slowly but surely making sense of it all. And one could even hazard a guess that Collins feels responsible for all the new work that needs to be
1: done. Sure. But the other big issue is that for centuries, traditional biologists have been able to get by on their own, mostly. In this way, the cycle of observe, hypothesize, experiment, observe, has been a closed system. And that's not just for biology, but for lots of sciences. Here's Cathweid Zaraza of the NIH's Brain Initiative, really bringing that point home while chatting with Collins at a meeting called Faster Cures held just last year.
2: Big projects have gotten bigger, right? So 500 years ago, big data was staring out in the galaxy and mapping out the planets and how they were orbiting around the sun, right? And, and so I think there was,
0: there was a role of the individual investigator sitting and observing and, and framing
1: things. The, the problems today are so complex that one person can't handle all of that at all.
0: Okay, I can see that. For last year's season finale of Base Pairs, called The Brain Atlas, We talked about how the problem of mapping the brain is so complex that it can't be done by hand.
1: Or by eye, or microscopy, so to speak.
0: (laughs) Sure. So instead, neuroscientist Tony Zador is recruiting RNA sequencing to map the brain computationally. And then neuroscientists can pick specific neurons and circuits to investigate more traditionally.
1: It's an elegant solution, but... What they have yet to really work out is how to identify which neurons are significant for any one problem. Likewise in genomics, biologists have countless genes to choose from when investigating biological function or disease, but they struggle to select key targets for study. And why is this? CASHL Associate Professor Mickey Atwall suggests that it may just have to do with the fact that people are really bad at making predictions. Yeah, I mean, uh, in a way, I
2: feel, I feel like we're almost hardwired to get things wrong at some <laughs> level. Um, th- so there was one striking example I, I remember. Um, I went to a roulette table, and the most common thing to do in a roulette table is to either bet on red or black. Right? It's roughly 50/50, Merge. right? Except for the few green ones, right? One or two, depending on whether you are—in U.S. or Europe. Okay. Right. So, so people either bet, you know, next one's either going to be a red or a black, and uh, these roulette table managers are smart. So what they figured out is if you show the customers what colors have been played in the past, mm-hmm. that's going to offset how people think about um, random, meaning. If a person sees that there were six reds played in the past, there's a compulsion within them to bet the next one's gonna be black, (laughs) right?
1: Right, we used up our reds, so
2: Yeah, Yeah. and you know, there was a part of me, there was almost like a primitive part of me that showed that urge, (laughs) right? Yeah, of course the next one's been back. There's been six mirrors in a row. But if you if you if you're grounded in understanding probability theory, you would understand. It, it makes no difference. Right. But, but like, I saw this time and time again, right? Right? So we're we're really bad at understanding whether something is a statistical fluke or something is a real signal.
1: What's wild is that even in this roulette example, the data we're dealing with is very small. Just 36 numbers, three colors, and some results. And yet, even Mickey, who is a trained physicist and quantitative biologist, even he feels the urge to bet irrationally, to feel that those results actually influence the next outcome, even when he knows that in reality they are what academics call statistical noise. It's no wonder that we can't make heads or tails of big data.
0: But Brian, isn't that what quantitative biologists do? help biologists filter out that noise from big data sets? In part,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah, really good question. <laughs> so, I mean, I think um, there are as many answers to that question as there are quantitative biologists, right? It's, um, it's not really answered um, to anybody's satisfaction. And I think there's a really good reason for that. Um, in most areas of science, um, chemistry, you know, geology, you're defined by your object of study. And this is especially true in biology. So, neuroscience is defined by the study of the neural system, right. and plant biology studying plants, or cancer biology studying tumours. Mm-hmm. Quantitative biology isn't defined by an object of study. So, the role of a quantitative biologist is to ask certain kinds of questions and to ask for certain kind of solutions. Mm
1: -hmm. That's all very vague right now.
2: Yeah, so, but what it does mean is our domain of study can cut across many different areas of biology. The kind of questions we ask are different from the usual kind of questions a biologist would ask. For example, we would want to ask, can we simplify what we see, Mm -hmm. our observations, into something abstract, such that we can make a predictive model of that. Can we make a predictive mathematical model of the phenomena we observe? And can we test those predictions? And to do this, you really have to um, formulate the problem in a very different manner than the way a traditional biologist would.
1: Would this fall on the lines of, like, I don't know, Punnett squares? Because I usually associate that with math, and yet. You might remember these little charts from high school biology class called Punnett squares. And even today, students use them to visualize algebraic equations that predict the outcome of basic genetic crosses.
2: Right, so that's a really good example, right? You know, so, um, I mean, I think, uh, I think that's arguably the first time most biologists experience a, an equation, right? So that's a really simple example because it gives you a prediction of what's the expected uh, observation given some set of hypotheses. You see,
1: Andrea, quantitative biologists are often the reinforcements that traditional biologists need in this age of big data. They're essentially that outside help that Dr. Zaraza was talking about in his discussion with Director Collins.
0: So they provide a new perspective, allowing predictions and observations to be made on a concrete, statistical level. That way, biologists can then formulate their new hypotheses and experiments based on what they learn.
1: Right, right now Mickey is working in collaboration with a number of specialists in trying to better understand breast cancer. And his lab here at CSHL
2: is bringing that essential quantitative biology perspective
1: to the table.
2: Now, immunotherapy is a a buzzword and you may have read about this in popular press. And there's been some really exciting uh, developments in the treatment of lung cancer and skin cancer melanoma but it hasn't fared so well in breast cancer. So one of the things that keeps me up at nighttime is trying to understand why not? Why why aren't the immune cells, which we know are found in breast cancers, why aren't they doing their job and killing the cancer cells? What is it about the cancer cells that somehow tricks the immune cells into not attacking them? So the research team that we've built and grouped together is really focused on understanding the communication between the different kinds of cells that you find in a growing tumour. So we have actual biopsies from patients in a clinic based in Los Angeles that are actually shipped over here to, to Cold Spring Harbor. And with our DNA sequencing facilities, we actually are able to measure the activity of thousands of genes in individual cells.
0: Oh my, that's a lot of data. And how each cell expresses those genes can differ wildly. One could even think of the environment around a tumor as a neighborhood. You've got your behaving cells expressing their genes in one way, and then there's cancer cells acting badly. But there's also a lot of other cell personalities, if you will, who also might act strangely.
1: That chatter alone creates
2: a lot of statistical
1: noise.
0: Right, and when everyone is talking with everyone,
2: So it's a bit like a needle in a haystack problem. So we have to develop algorithms that can sift through mountains of data and try to find out which genes are actually really important. And more importantly for this project, which genes are really important for the cells to bypass the immune system and actually allow the cancer cells to grow without the immune system killing them off.
1: Essentially, breast cancer cells are really good at conning their neighborhood. Those good citizen cells Andrea mentioned can't tell that their nasty neighbors are ruining the neighborhood and are happy to communicate with them. And because the cancer cells are acting so darn neighborly, the immune system, or the local police in this metaphor, don't realize that they're criminals.
0: But if Mickey and his collaborators are successful, the hope is that they can identify ways to quiet those problematic cell-to-cell conversations, putting a stop to cancer's neighborly act.
1: Mickey's project is one of many so-called big science collaborations. This is one funded by the group Stand Up the Cancer, and it shows the power of various scientific disciplines, all aiming their efforts at one objective. However, Mickey argues that for these projects to truly move science forward in this age of big data, everyone needs to become a little more familiar with quantitative
2: biology. You certainly don't want to be in a position where you know, you're shuttling off your data to somebody else and you treat the other person like a black box. Right? They somehow perform their magic and they say, yes, we found uh, these top genes which are relevant to this disease. Right? You want to be able to have a more intelligent conversation than that. Right? You want to say, you know, what is the evidence, what is the statistical evidence, or, you know, what are the, uh, what's the effect size, what are the, the base factors. And even if you're not going to be able to do the analysis yourself, I think it's really important for the experimentalists and the classical biologists to be, at least be able to understand what are the steady statistical techniques that are required to sift through mountains of, of biological data. I really do believe that you know the next generation of biologists, you know, undergraduates, graduates, and postdocs all need to be trained in computational and quantitative skills.
0: Hmm, well, there is good news. Here at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, the students of our Watson School of Biological Sciences
1: That's our PhD program.
0: Every student admitted to that program is required to take what can be best described as a computational boot camp, where they learn Python. That's the premier programming language for many important scientific databases, and the same one that Giovanna, that high schooler we heard at the beginning of the show, was learning for her project.
1: And amazingly, it's mostly being taught to students who have only ever known textbooks and a lab bench. They are
2: introduced to computers and say, hey, this is what a computer is, this is what it does, this is what it doesn't do. Uh, This is how we can write code using Python to perform basic commands. And by the end of two days, they're actually analyzing next-generation sequencing data by themselves.
0: Mickey teaches this bootcamp, and as you might expect, He and his subject are not exactly popular with new
1: students. Can you blame them? They came here to do science and instead Mickey's got them sitting behind a computer doing code.
0: And yet, we know this is exactly how lots of science gets done.
2: I'm sure there's a whole bunch of them who hate me when they first arrive. (laughs) right? So what's interesting is that because it's such a new skill set, such a new concept for them, and it's so immersive the first day, by the end of the first day, they usually end up dreaming or <laughs> think about Python um, uh, obsessively. Right? And you, 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 can, you can get to a state where you, know, you can just spend hours in front of a computer coding away. It can become quite addictive and some of them you know, become converts.
1: According to Mickey, it's rare to have a true convert, a student who actually leaves their well-paved bioscience path to wade into the unknown of quantitative biology. However, he did explain that by the end, the idea that you can frame a theoretical, scientific question mathematically becomes pretty popular among the students
0: so popular, in fact, that for three years now, Mickey has been elected to receive the Winship Her Teaching Award by the Watson School's freshman class.
1: It's basically a teacher popularity contest, and each year, Mickey acts like he has no idea why he's won it.
2: It's always a bit of a mystery how or who decides nominations and uh, awards, and uh, whoever you are, um, Russian hackers included, um, thank you. Um, Your check is in the mail.
0: I spoke with Mickey about this for a story on our LabDish blog, but it's easy to see why his course is actually popular. While other instructors are simply reinforcing old skill sets and scientific methods, Mickey is actually teaching these students something fresh. It's practically a new way of thinking for many of these young scientists.
1: And that's what I actually found most surprising during my chat with Mickey. While this strategy, this way of approaching theoretical problems, seems rather new to many scientists,
2: it's actually been around for decades. What's not actually not uh, appreciated enough, I think, is that arguably the most famous paper in molecular biology, the Watson-Crick paper, mm-hmm. that's a theory paper, right? right. There's, there's no data in there. Right? Yeah. There's no new data that's reported. It's basically a theoretical conjecture based on. Um, Solving some equations on, you know, the crystallographic structure.
1: And yet, in that paper, in the 1953 Nature paper in which Watson and Crick proposed that the DNA molecule was shaped like a double helix, there is a single line that many scientists can recite
0: <clears throat> It has not escaped our notice, it begins, that the specific pairing we have postulated immediately suggests a possible copying mechanism for the genetic material.
1: This bon mall is famous probably as much for its coyness and understatement as for the significance of its prediction. And that's a good embodiment of what quantitative biology really is. It's not a field of study, but a strategy, and even a way of thinking with predictive powers that are too often underappreciated. Mickey is
0: but one of our scientists employing quantitative biology in a quest to answer some really important questions. So like always, This won't be the last you hear of this subject.
1: Cancer, autism, neuroscience, even the evolution of humanity, and so much more. All are subjects that employ quantitative biology, and all are things we have or will talk about in episodes of Base Pairs.
0: So stay with us, and as always, more science stories soon.
1: So that's it. Thanks go out to William Floyd science teacher Victoria D'Ambrosia, as well as Connectquat High School students Chris and Giovanna.
0: We should give a shout out to our DNA Learning Center's Barcode Long Island Symposium, the amazing event where Brian met those students. And of course, a big thank you to Associate Professor Mickey Atwal for helping us understand such a complex subject.
1: And thank you artists! This episode includes work from Javier Suarez, known as Jazar, as well as Broke for Free, Little Glass Men, and The Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next month with another episode, but in the meantime, you can check out our LabDish blog. There, you'll find bonus photos and videos about the episode you just heard.
0: You could also review us on iTunes and tell us what you think of the show. We're coming to you from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, a private, not-for-profit research and education institution at the forefront of molecular biology and genetics. So if you'd like to support the research that goes on here, you can find out how to do that at cshl.edu.
1: And feel free to pay us a visit. Between our undergraduate research program, high school partnerships, graduate school, meetings and courses, the DNA Learning Center, and public events, there really is something for everyone. I'm Andrea. And I'm Brian.
0: And this is Base Pairs. More science stories soon. I think it's Beaumont.
1: Is that Beaumont? Bon <laughs> um, right, I'd have to look it up. No, I, I think, think you're right. It. That sounds right.